Did your family have like the shelf of the plastic Disney VHS tapes? You know what I mean? It looked like it was like a bookshelf, but it was just all the same size, perfectly next to each other. The, the Disney plastic ones, they had that sound when you popped them open, right? And the VHS. And Disney was great at this because you could have a whole shelf of these VHS tapes and every single movie would end the same way. They lived happily ever after. We are so used to like the Disney, the Hollywood ending, and they lived happily ever after. A nice resolution. The book of Judges is not that. And we, this morning, are going to be looking at the last five chapters of the book of Judges. And I know that seems like a whole lot. But there is going to be a theme throughout it. And and there's parts of this that... I'm not going to get down into detail with because it's just gross. But we're going to look at these last five chapters as a way of trying to land the plane in our, our study through the book of Judges when it's not really a land the plane kind of ending to the book of Judges. There's no happy ending. It doesn't end well. Let's recap a little bit, okay? The book of Judges, right, is in our Old Testament, and it is in a time of Israel's history where God has freed his people from slavery in Egypt and brought them into what's called the promised land. You may remember, centuries before, God called a random guy named Abraham, and he said, I am going to turn you into a great nation. You're going to have so many descendants as there are sand on the seashore and stars in the sky. Your descendants are going to be a blessing to the nations of the world. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. All nations will be blessed through your descendants. And I'm going to give your descendants this special land that is going to be theirs as an inheritance. This will be the place from which people will see what I am like through how your descendants, my people, live. A few generations later, Abraham's descendants go down to Egypt, and they're enslaved for 400 years. We have the whole Exodus story, right? And the Passover and the plagues, and God brings his people out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses. They cross the Red Sea. They go into the wilderness, and they meet God at the mountain. And he says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. And he gives them a law and establishes a covenant with them. And he says, live like this as a way of reflecting that you are my people. And in fact, the way that you live as a people will be a blessing to the nations around you, just like he promised to Abraham. And he said, I will give you this land. And there's people living there who are going to live completely opposite to how I'm asking you to live. So when you go into the land, you're going to have to drive them out and you're going to have to not adopt the ways that they live. Live like my holy people. Live in a way that shows people what I'm like, that blesses the nations. A a generation later, they finally enter the promised land after having to wander the desert for 40 years because they disobeyed. And they're under the leadership of a man named Joshua who leads a military conquest to take over this promised land that God had given them. But it's an incomplete conquest. They, They kind of failed their military mission to drive the people out. And so they kind of apathetically move in alongside the people. And we read through Joshua and the beginning of the book of Judges, 
that this is the beginning of a difficult time for God's people because it is a lot easier to live like those around you. And we see this cycle begin to take place. This, this cycle that is repeated time after time after time in the book of Judges, where they would be at peace, they'd establish themselves in their land, and then they would start seeing the gods and the way that the people lived around them, and so they would sin by worshiping the idols and the gods of, of the Canaanites. And so God, in punishment, would allow these nations to oppress the Israelites, and they would cry out repentance, and God would raise up a judge, a deliverer, often a military leader who would, who would gather the armies of Israel together to overthrow whatever oppressive power it was, and they would be at a time of peace for X number of years. And this cycle repeats over and over and over. This week, though, we are going to see Israel hit the low point, and there's no judge. There's no kind of, this is the figure that we're focusing on this week who's going to set the people free. There's no judge in these last five chapters. Samson last week was our final judge. The attention that we're supposed to give isn't, isn't on an individual, but on a phrase that gets repeated over and over in these last five chapters. It was mentioned in the video where the author of Judges is reminding us that Israel at that time was without a king. This is the theme that ties these last five chapters together. That makes them almost this this unified uh, part of the book. I'll I'll show you uh, some examples within the text itself. That There's almost like these bookends to this section where 17.6 says, In those days Israel had no king, Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That is mirrored at the very final verse of the book. And in between, there's a couple times where it's mentioned again, in those days, Israel had no king. In those days, Israel had no king. So there will be this phrase that happens that reminds you there's no king, everyone did what they wanted, and then a story of some gruesome event. And Israel had no king. And another account of of what happens when when they did what was right in their own eyes and repeated, and they had no king. And then finally, the stories that bring Israel to its knees and repeated again, in those days Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, what should be kind of weird to us is throughout the book of Judges, Israel didn't have a king. In fact, kings aren't mentioned a whole lot in the book of Judges other than that time, remember when Gideon beat the Midianites and the people came to Gideon and they're like, we want you to be our king. And he said, no. Other than that, there's not really this idea of Israel having a king. So what what that shows us is the book of Judges, this is being written at a later date, probably when Israel had kings. And looking back at their history, And saying, remember this that happened? This was when we had no king. This is is what happened when we didn't have that figure. There was something about a king, or what a king was meant to be, that was to remind the people of their role as God's holy people. Remember last week we talked about Samson as a Nazarite? And he was supposed to be like a human billboard to remind the Israelites, this is who you are as God's people. Right? This is the holy people you were called to be. 
A king is like that, but even more intensely. The king was supposed to remind God's people of who they were, and he actually had the power to influence the culture and nation and laws to, to, to point things in that direction. In fact, when God met with his people on the mountain and gave them his laws of how you should live once you're in the land, he gave specific laws about eventually, once you appoint a king, this is what the king should be like. You read this in Deuteronomy 17. We call this the, the king law. When they were to appoint a king, it was supposed to be a fellow Israelite, not, not just some great leader. They weren't, weren't supposed to outsource their leadership. It was supposed to be a king who didn't amass an overwhelming army, whose, whose hope wasn't in their, their, their military might. They weren't supposed to send the people back to Egypt or to have military alliances with Egypt because God had rescued them out of Egypt. That Egypt isn't where they go for security. Egypt is where they come out of by the power of God. King wasn't supposed to marry a bunch of wives. This seems weird to us today, but if you read the stories of the kings of Israel, this never happened. They always married a bunch of wives. They weren't supposed to accumulate a lot of personal wealth, and they were supposed to have a personal copy of the law and read it daily. Now, that seems strange to us who, man, we can go on Amazon and order whatever Bible we want, right? And have it and read our own personal copy of the Bible. But that was, that was not common. That's not what the average Israelite had. And so this is significant that the king was meant to be someone not who was pulled away by uh, his desire for all these women and likely these you know, political marriages and alliances that would draw him to worship other gods, not put his, his stock in, in the military that he had or in his own wealth, but he was meant to be someone who meditated on the law day and night who, like in Psalm 1, is like a tree planted by the river, whose roots grow deep into the water that is God's law. He was meant to be someone who helped Israel to be reminded of who they were as God's people and to lead in a way that influenced God's people towards the holy calling that he placed on them. That as the descendants of Abraham, they would be a light to the nations. However, in this kingless time, we read that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Let's walk through just a 30,000 foot view of what these last five chapters of Judges tell us about this time. This time without a king, this time where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It starts off with a man named Micah who his mother had a bunch of silver coins that he found, and he decided, I'm going to melt these down, and I'm going to make uh, an idol out of it. And so he did that, and he set up an idol at his mother's house, and this became like the local worship center for people. They weren't supposed to worship idols. They weren't supposed to worship anywhere other than God's tabernacle, which was at Shiloh. This was a way of drawing people away from the worship of God and to worship this idol. And we see this, this religious, uh, the, the kind of religious downturn of Israel through this story of Micah and his idol. To the point where Micah, he sees a Levite, 
which is one of the tribes of Israel who was meant to be those who looked after the tabernacle, who was kind of the worship leaders of Israel. And he says, hey, let me hire you, Levite, to be my personal priest who attend to my kind of idol sanctuary up here in the mountains so that when people come to worship the idol that I have here, you can kind of be the priest for them. So he hires this Levite. Lots of people start flooding to this place to worship rather than to worship God in the way that he asked. And what we read is this assumption that they're doing what God wants. They go to this idol and they say, well, let's inquire of the Lord here at this, this, uh, the, the sanctuary of this idol. Let's have this priest ask the Lord for us. When it's completely opposite of what God had asked his people to do. It gets to a point where the entire tribe of Dan, which lived up in the north of Israel, they came to this place where this idol was, and they asked this priest, listen, we're looking for new land for our tribe. What should we do? Let's inquire of the Lord with this priest. And the priest tells them, oh yeah, go and take over this land. And they say, okay, cool. Can we like hire you and you can be the priest of us now and go with us into this new land? And he says, sure, it's you know, more money and it's better than being out here alone in the mountains. So he goes with his tribe and they go and they commit complete genocide of a city called Laish, and they burn it to the ground, kill all its inhabitants, and claim that as their territory. This was an Israelite town. This, was, this is Dan almost acting as if the conquest is still happening, but against Israelites. And they take over this land saying, oh, well, the priest told us this is what God wants us to do. So here we have Israelites slaying Israelites over land, hiring of priests to kind of give religious language and justification to the campaign that they want to do. And there's a twist at the end of this story that this Levite priest who was hired, who gave the okay for this, this genocide to happen, was Moses' grandson. And that should hit us in the gut as we read this to say, Look what two generations did. Look what happened from the one that God used to liberate the Israelites from Egypt to now his grandson is leading the, the, the tribe of Dan to conquer this city. In fact, um, Steve Dempster, who was here, pointed out that some of the scribes who were copying the Old Testament were so sickened by the fact that it said it was Moses' grandson that they scratched out Moses and they wrote Manasseh. Manasseh was the worst king of Israel. So they're like, there's no way it can be Moses' grandson. We don't want to sully Moses' name, so we're going to write Manasseh in there. Like, that he's this grandson of like this evil guy. Because they couldn't bear the humiliation of how bad things got, even in Moses' own family. The next chapter continues with a story about another Levite. This likely isn't Moses' grandson. Another man who is meant to be a priest, who's meant to lead people in worship of God. And he has a concubine, which is like a half-wife, 
someone he gets to, to sleep with and he gets to own, but doesn't have the full status and benefit of being his wife. And she runs away from him down to Bethlehem, so he chases after her and spends a few days with his father-in-law there. And on their way back home, as he's bringing her back, this Levite and his servant and his concubine are walking back home, and they say, we, we need to stop for the night. Let's stop in Jerusalem. At that time, Jerusalem didn't belong to the Israelites. They said, no, let's not stop there because that's Canaanites. We want to stay in a safer city. So we'll go, you know, 10 miles further and go up to Gibeah. So they walk further and they go to Gibeah, a, a, a town in the tribe of Benjamin. You know, they're Israelites. It should be fine. It'd be safer than staying in Jerusalem for the night. And so they're sleeping in the, the town square, and a man says, oh, listen, don't, don't sleep out here. Come and stay at my house. And so they're staying in this man's house. He provides them with a meal, and all of a sudden an angry mob from the town comes and swarms the house, knocking on the doors, saying, bring out this Levite and his servant so that we can violate them. This like angry, sexualized mob that is trying to violate this man and his servant. This is exactly a replication of what happened in Genesis with the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember that? With Lot and the angels and the people of the town came to Lot's house and said, send them out so that we can sexually violate them. And Lot says no. This is showing that a city of the people of God is reflecting Sodom and Gomorrah rather than the holy people. And in a disgusting turn in this story, instead of just locking them out, this Levite sends his concubine out to the mob where they have their way with her all night until morning where she is lying dead on the doorstep. And even more strange, the Levite takes her, he cuts up her body and sends it out, all the pieces, to the different tribes of Israel. He says, this is what the people of Benjamin did. No mention of the fact that I gave her to them. And so Israel assembles a military from all of the tribes and they come down and they all but wipe out the tribe of Benjamin. They kill men and women and children and destroy cities to the point where there's only a few hundred Benjamites left. They nearly wipe out an entire tribe of their people. This reaction to brutality that leads to even more brutality. And all of a sudden, they're in a panic. They say, oh man, like, this tribe is going to die out. Because there's only 600 men left, and, and the tribe of Benjamin is going to be gone after that. So they say, okay, like, yeah, we killed a lot of them. We think it was maybe justified because of what happened, but we can't completely eradicate one of the tribes of Israel. So they say, right, we need to find wives for these men of Benjamin to continue the tribe of Benjamin. So they say, who didn't come to help us fight? They said, oh, well, there's this region over on the other side of the river. 
And they didn't send any of their military to come and fight. So the Israelites say, okay, let's go and kill all of them and take their wives and give them as wives to the Benjamites. That'll be the solution so that the the tribe of Israel can continue. And that's what they do. Except after all that brutality and bloodshed and taking women to, to then be used by the Benjamites as wives, there's not enough wives for all of the Benjamites. So they say, listen, single guys of the tribe of Benjamin, we'll look the other way if at the upcoming religious festival that's happening, you guys just kind of like hide out and kidnap women and take them as your wives. And that's the solution they come up with. We just see this like downward spiral of, I think this is a good idea. This is going to be our solution as the people deciding together in order to solve the problems that we created. It goes from one woman who's being brutally raped by a town to now a whole town of women that are taken to be forced to be wives of this tribe. And then now all these women who get to be kidnapped and raped as wives of the remaining Benjamite. It's just like brutality after brutality and it hits rock bottom. Religiously and morally, Israel's corrupt. And the phrase is repeated. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And I think the implication that we're supposed to see from this is that the hope for Israel is in a king. But not just any king. Tim Mackey, who's kind of the the brain behind Bible Project, uh, we've been using a lot of their their graphics and their, um, their study work as part of our study. He says that what God's people mainly need isn't a king who can rescue them from their political enemies, but a king who can rescue them from themselves. Ultimately, what the people of Israel need is Jesus. And that's easy for us to see on this side of the cross. A king who's not, just, who's, who's not going to be the, the political influencer, who's not going to be the military leader, but is actually going to save them from the greatest danger, which is what's going on in here. Because without that, they're going to do what's right in their own eyes, and we see the brutality that that leads to. None of the kings of Israel fulfill that role. In fact, if you, you know, go back to the Deuteronomy list, they're, they're all like, no, fail, 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 fail. Even those who have the most success. The solution was Jesus and his kingdom and his hope for the human heart. So the question for us today, as we read Judges, and as we're left with this brutal, ugly ending, with this repeated phrase, is for us to ask ourselves, who's our king? Who's our king? Because we live in a a time and a place where we celebrate the fact that we're our own king. 
We celebrate the fact that I get to do what is right in my own eyes. Like that, that, is, that is the thing that is most celebrated in our culture. Our, our own freedom to do what we think is right. But judges, and I'm willing to bet our own stories, show us that that is not actually true. That doing what is right in our own eyes is not what's best for us. Our society walks on this like knife's edge of, of do what you think is right for you, but also there's this area over here of like, but you can't do these things. And this area is getting smaller and smaller, and we're seeing the fallout from that constantly. That when we do what is right in our own eyes, like judges, like the Israelites, it leads to death and ruin and moral bankruptcy. Maybe we'll say, well, I need a leader to, to rise up and to be that king that I'm looking for. I need Pierre Polyver to, to rise up and be the new leader of the, the conservatives, to get rid of Trudeau, to be the leader that Canada needs. Or we need a leader in the West who's going to be able to stand up to Putin to be the one that we need who will lead us into freedom. We need the right influencer, the right celebrity to, to amplify this cause that is going to change our society for the better. The problem is, whether it's in ourselves being king or wanting the right leader to rise up and to be the king for us, is it's not actually us or them who's ruling. I would say the, the real kind of like shadow king behind all of these kings, whether it's us or the people we want to be king, is sin and death. And Paul, throughout his, his letters, he talks about sin as this ruling force that has entered creation, that has corrupted our hearts, that when we think we're the ones making choices and ruling and, and having our way, it's actually sin that is acting on us as much as we're the ones acting. Sin is the one ruling our lives. We're actually not ruling our lives. That's what we see in Judges. That's what we see today in our story and in the world's story. That there's a power at work that is darker than Vladimir Putin. That there is sin ruling behind that. And the only way to free ourselves from that sin isn't the right ruler, isn't in us rising up to, to have the kind of freedom that we want, it's in the king who came and died to break the power of sin and death. I want to read to you Paul's words in Romans 6. He says, For if we have been united with Christ in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that our body, ruled by sin, might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. When we think we're ruling, it's actually sin ruling us. And our only hope at freedom is for Christ to be our king. To say, I'm willing to let 
myself and my agenda and what I want to die so that I can live a new life in Christ. For me to not be king anymore, but for Christ to be. And that, that, that's the declaration that, that Jay and Paula made last week in baptism. That Christ is king, not me. That's what this is about when we say, I want to follow Christ by faith, that he is my king, not me. And it's in that that the power of sin is going to be broken. So the question for us is, Christ your king? This morning we're going to turn our attention towards the Lord's table. Where we're going to celebrate communion, which is a way for us to very visually and with our, our senses, our taste, and our touch and smell, remember the fact that what Christ did on the cross is more than just some religious story, but was in a king coming and giving his life to break the power of sin, who took the consequences of our sin upon himself on the cross so that the power of sin over us can be broken. From between now and Easter, as Judges has wrapped up, we're going to be looking every week on, on the way that on the cross, what Christ did frees us from sin, forgives our sins, overcomes the powers and principalities. How What happens that we celebrate at this table is good news to us.